0: Good morning everyone. It's so good to be back here at Fellowship Bible Church. I'm sure that my friend uh, Eli, who came last week, has introduced the series and about ourselves. Uh, We are from Crossway Community Church in Bristol, and uh, we are in this pastoral training program, uh, being trained to preach and pastor uh, different churches as we are in this training session. And I'll be preaching today and next month. We are all very excited for this series. And um, let us pray as we hear from the Word. Father God, thank you so much for your Word this morning. We pray that you would open us up our hearts so that we will not only be those who hear your Word, but will be transformed so that we will be doers of your Word. We pray that your... Word will be a light upon our hearts that we will be able to respond to your love and your revealed word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And me and my wife sitting right here. We moved um, to a different place outside of campus recently because tuitions are pretty high in seminary, and uh, you know the rent is pretty high in, up in Deerfield as well. So we've actually found a free housing. And the deal was we have to take care of the house and the cats (laughs) for a free house and sounds like a good deal except you realize that there's not one or two or three cats but nine of them (laughs) so um, it's frankly speaking it's pretty chaotic in our house right now but when we first went into the house to kind of see the whole view um, there was no lighting there and it looked like a haunted mansion to be honest because nobody was living there for like I don't know like five or six years And we can tell that the house has been deserted for a while, but the dim light in the interior, within the dim light, the interior looked kind of okay. I mean, the furnitures were kind of old and everything, but the whole place looked kind of decent with all the antique and everything. Not until we turned on the light. When the owner, or not the owner, but the guy who was working there, turned on the light switch, the whole room turned... And we can see all the dust and all the dirt and the mud and some sticky thing on the floor, which I had no idea what it was and all that. And yuck! Immediately we knew there was so much work to be done in the house. And the moment we turned on the light was a moment of revelation. Oh, it's so dirty. And light pierces the covering of darkness, it exposes what lies underneath. And to be honest with you, I felt like turning the light off again. (laughs) I I really felt like, okay, I didn't see that. I did not see that. But I didn't do that because I knew that would just be deception and pretending everything is alright when it actually isn't. Now, a similar thing can happen in our spiritual lives. We can be tempted to just turn off the light and run back into the darkness, pretend as if everything is fine, everything is okay, Pretend we didn't see anything wrong with ourselves. But in today's passage, John addresses this temptation head-on and calls out those who claim to be Christians while still living in darkness. And he argues that Christians are those who walk in the light of Christ. Let us turn first to verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. John starts this section off with a proclamation of who God is. This is a typical move that John makes. He starts off everything with the identity of God. Who God is. Here he proclaims the truth that God is light. And I think I can preach just from this word, God is light, for like three hours. It's such a rich statement. What does it mean that God is light? Let me ask you a question. What do you think of when you hear the word light? There are so many things that light does. What do you think John was intending when he uses this word light here? One way to find out what John meant is to kind of trace back the usage of his words in other uh, literature and his entire corpus. And there are mainly two ways John uses the word light in his whole corpus, the letters, and also in the Gospel of John. First, John uses light to mean truth in his Gospels, in contrast to darkness, which is falsehood. This is especially apparent in John 9, a passage about a man born blind, where he is compared to those religious leaders who claimed to see the truth but were actually in the dark. Second, John uses light in an ethical sense or moral sense to mean righteousness where John talks about walking in the light, as walking in righteousness in contrast to walking in darkness, in sin. These two notions, light being truth and light being in righteousness, are actually very much interconnected. When we are in the dark, we can't see anything, so we don't know what's there. We are blind to the truth. But when there is light, we know which way to go, where to turn? And which means walking in the right direction. So walking in knowledge of the truth, the light, both reveals the truth to us and enables us to walk correctly in the right path. So this notion of light being truth and righteousness is what John has in mind here in this passage. The passage that is most relevant to our text is Gospel of John three nineteen to 21 In John 3, this passage, the good person, unlike the one who does evil, is described as whoever lives by the truth. Light implies both truth and righteousness. This is the image that John paints for us in Christ's incarnation. God is light, and that light came to the world as Jesus Christ. If God is light, and He has come to the world as our Savior Jesus Christ, What does it mean for humans, for us, to have a relationship with that light? That is the central question of our passage today. If God is light, what what does that mean for us? And John explains that using the if formula. If A is true, then B follows. We will start from the negative implications of what it means for us to have a relationship with that God who is light. The negative implication that follows the fact that God is light is this. If we walk in darkness, we have no fellowship with God because God is light and there is no darkness in Him at all. Darkness in this context is sin. Sin is what removes our fellowship with God. It is an obstacle with our fellowship with God. And John gives us three ways we can do that. Three ways we can walk in darkness And in blindness. The first way to walk in darkness is plainly to walk in the dark by neglecting sin or ignoring sin. Verse 6 If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We can't have fellowship with God who is light while we are walking in darkness. It's like claiming to be having suntan when you're in the cave, and saying, oh, I've got so much tan where it's impossible to have tan because there's no light coming in. It is an oxymoron. This term walking means continuous habit or lifestyle. It's a continuous and intentional walking, a way of life that is contrary to God's way of light. It is like how you want to live both ways. You don't want to let go of your lifestyle. You don't want to let go of your comfortable life. But you still want to claim to be a Christian. And you still want to cling on and say, Hey, I'm a believer. You want the best of both worlds. So you neglect sin, you ignore sin, and pretend you fake it. You fake being a Christian while you are actually in darkness. I must confess, when I entered college, that is exactly what I wanted. You know, when you enter into college, there's so many things you can do, so many activities and everything, and I was so excited, and I wanted to live, I wanted the best of the both worlds. I wanted to live Monday to Saturday, totally as a non-believer, and then go to Sunday to church and act as I had full fellowship with God. So I would go to nightclubs on Saturday nights, and get wasted, and then I uh, wake up in the morning to play worship on Sunday mornings. It was just, it was just so hypocritical. But I even had my um, Facebook account. you know, I mean, now we have Instagram and all that. Um, I was told by one of my students recently, when I talked about Facebook that Facebook is for old folks now, so I was a bit, that was a shocker for me, but uh, that used to be new when I was in college. So we had two different Facebook accounts. I had one Facebook account for my Christian friends and I had another one with a name Maximus or something something like a rare random name which I thought was cool at the time but I had a different name for non-Christians and I made sure that those don't interact so I was really trying to live two different worlds I was pretending to be in the light while continuously walking in darkness Now, that's not the end of the story, or else I better not be standing here today. (laughs) But I will get back to that later. A second false claim, second way to walk in darkness, is in verse 5. It is to deny sin. It's self-deception. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, We deceive ourselves. Well, you might be thinking, well, who says such a thing? Could someone say such a bold claim that I have no sin? But throughout church history, there has always been groups of very pious Christians, very pious Christians who sought to live a righteous life who claimed that they can be sinless, that they were in fact sinless because they have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Now I think most of us wouldn't go as far to that extreme and claim, I'm a Christian so I have no sin. Most of us wouldn't go that far, but the temptation is pretty real, especially in today's society I feel. In church history, there was a guy called Pelagius, one of the early Christians who claimed to be without sin. And the reason why he wanted to claim that was because he was so alarmed of the sin and darkness and the evil and immorality of the Roman society. One of the early church fathers, Augustine, called, recalls that Pelagius was known as the most righteous person. He was the most righteous and respected Christian at the time. And he was so pious that he wanted to fight against the evils of society that he realized that, oh, I can be without sin compared to those Romans who are immoral. He was so concerned about living righteously, but he was like a Pharisee in Luke 18 who prayed, God, thank you that I am not like that tax collector. When the world around us seems so evil and defiled, it is so easy to point fingers at others and condemn their sin, and perhaps at times we should. But the danger is that the more we are concerned about sin of others and the world outside of us, we can have this illusion sometimes that I'm actually not so bad after all. That I might be better than them. Even if you don't claim to be sinless, you can easily fall into thinking, well, I'm better than that guy. Or I'm better than this party or this people, group of people who does that and this. And this is a real danger for Christians today, I feel, because that can blind us of the sins that are actually inside of us. And third, in verse 10, the third way to walk in darkness that John portrays is to deny sinful actions. Verse 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. You might be thinking, okay, that sounds like what I just said before. (laughs) What are the differences between those two? But notice the small difference between verse 8, if we say we have no sin, and verse 10, if we say we have not sinned. John is not repeating the same thing here, but he is developing his arguments. First false claim was ignoring sin. Second was to claim to be sinless. Now third is to deny that sin exists in yourself or to deny sinful actions. While the previous was saying, I'm not a sinner, this one is saying, I haven't sinned. There's a, this is a difference between identity and action. In the previous case, you were acknowledging certain behaviors to be sinful. You were saying, okay, that's sin, but I don't have that. But now you are saying, that's not sin." One Bible commentator commentator comments that this may be the worst of all three because you're denying sin itself. And I'm in the Masters of Divinity and Master of Arts in, not systemic, but systematic theology. And one of our tasks in systematic theology is to describe the philosophical assumptions behind the worldviews of the time. And one of the most influential philosophers is called Nietzsche, who declared the death of God. He said, God is dead now. Now, everything is permitted because God is dead. For him, there is no absolute moral values, and the death of God means everything is okay. Sin, according to Nietzsche, is no longer called sin. It's called finitude. It's just something inherent in humanity. It's just a weakness. It's just something everybody has. It's not a big deal. It's no longer a transgression of God's law, but simply weakness that we all have. Sin has been redefined in our modern times. Sin is no longer considered sin. Different sinful action has been given different names so that they wouldn't sound so bad after all. Adultery is now called having an affair. Sexual promiscuity is called sleeping around. Or selfishness is called standing up for your rights. Yet God does not allow us to redefine what sin is. He does not allow us to redefine what good and evil is because there is such thing as absolute morality. And denying the existence of sin not only deceives ourselves, which it does, but it also calls God a liar. Denial of the existence of sin is denial of the God who came to save us from our sins because the whole biblical revelation is about God coming to this world to take away the sins of man. If we say there is no sin, we call God a liar. Now we have seen the three ways sin can remove our fellowship with God. First, by ignoring its existence, trying not to see it, pretending as if it's not there, and two, by denying that I'm a sinner, and three, by denying that there is such thing as sin. And all three of this keeps us in the dark, And keeps us away from fellowship with God, who is light. When I entered my new house with nine cats a few weeks ago, I turned on the light and saw the ashes and dirt on the floor. And I had a couple options. I could either ignore it by turning off the light again. Okay, I didn't see that. Or two, I can convince myself that, okay, I mean, it's not too bad compared to that house out in the street. I mean, it's livable. Or three, deny that the house is dirty. Oh, dirt and dust, I'm totally okay with them. That's a natural phenomenon. No, we don't name them dust around here. We call them um, silver powder or something. Give them a new name and pretend that they're okay to be. And all three of these attitudes are just plain absurd. They are just plain absurd, but that's exactly the attitude that John is describing towards sin that's exactly how we are tempted to deal with sin ourselves, to ignore it or to deny it. Now, we have seen three ways that darkness and sin can remove our fellowship with God. Now John, after describing the falsehood, he counters that falsehood and deception with the truth. What does it take for Christians to live in the light? While verse 5 and verse 6 started with a negative implication of the statement, God is light, verse 7 is a positive side of what it means for us to have fellowship with the one who is light. Because God is light, although darkness of sin removes fellowship with God, Christ removes our sin to have fellowship with Him. Verse 7 if we walk in the light, and He is as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Because John has told us that God is light, to walk in the light means to walk in God, walking with God in the presence of God. It means to see reality in its true colors, being shed by the light of truth, light of God. John tells us that walking in light means two things: to have fellowship with one another and that the blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, John first says. And it's very interesting, I think, that John doesn't say, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with God. That makes the most sense to me from the context. But John instead says, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Of course, it's true that walking in the light means you have fellowship with God, But it's also true that we have fellowship with one another. And I think it's so important that John writes this here. It's not the case that we all have our own personal Jesus. It's not the case that we all have our personal flashlights or lights per se, and we all have our personal Jesus. We all have our personal relationships, but we don't interact with each other. I think evangelical Christians... We emphasize personal relationship with God, which is so vital, so important. And I don't by no means want to diminish that importance. But sometimes that personal relationship can be understood in an individualistic sense, which has the tendency to ignore the communal nature. That we have been made the people of God, the community of God, the communion of saints. It is easy to forget that as believers, we walk in the light together as Christians, as the church. Hence, walking in the light means we have fellowship not only with God one to one, but also with each other as fellow believers in Christ. One of the problems that John's church at the time was facing was the existence of false Christians, false believers, as it will be apparent throughout the letter, he goes back to the problem over and over. The false teachers seem to have focused on this supernatural knowledge of God called Gnosis. That I have this knowledge that's outside of the Bible, that I've given this spiritual knowledge that I don't need to go to church anymore. Many seem to have left the church thinking that they no longer need a fellowship because they now possess this special knowledge that God gave them. But John is making it extremely clear that those who walk in the light have fellowship not only with God but with one another. This is a theme that will continue to resound throughout this letter. The relationship between our faith, our relationship with God and our relationship and love that we have towards each other. That's the theme that will continue to appear throughout this letter. And the second implication of walking in the light is that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. This point is repeated again more fully in verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is a parallel between verse 7 9 and verses 6 and 8. Walking in darkness and saying we have no sin on the other hand, Walking in light and confessing our sins on the other. These four verses vividly presents us with the two alternative ways we can live. Two alternative ways we can deal with sin. To walk in darkness, saying we have no sin, or to ignore sin, or to walk in the light and confess our sins. The opposite of denial and deception is confession, to acknowledge. The Lord, I am a sinner. The Lord, I have sinned. The plural sins means that John is not only talking about general sin, but confession of specific sins. I think it is sometimes easier to generically confess our sins, saying, Lord, I'm a sinner, rather than saying, Lord, I have committed adultery, or rather than saying, Lord, I have wronged my friend or my spouse it's sometimes easier to be generic and say, I'm a sinner. But as Christians, we have... I think we have to be honest that sometimes we can even use, that since we are so used to hearing this phrase that I am a sinner, we can use that as a scapegoat almost to cloak our true sins that has to be dealt with, the actual sins, the specific sins that has to be brought out. A pastor once told me a story about a man who came to him for marriage counseling. And he said to the pastor, Pastor, I am such a sinner. I need your help. I am such a sinner. So after hearing his story, the pastor, said he, the pastor recognized some of the behaviors that, has, that he has wronged his wife. So he confronted him. He said, Brother, I think your attitude was sinful, and you should apologize to your spouse. Then the man got furious and barked at the pastor saying, How dare you? How dare you judge me? And the pastor said, But you just confessed that you are a sinner. But I think we are so tempted sometimes to generalize sin and use that to cloak what's really underneath us. Let us not use general sin As a cloak to cover up our actual sins that must be confronted, that must be brought forth. Now, what happens after we confess our sins? There is forgiveness and cleansing of sin. In verse 9, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness and cleansing is the promise of the gospel. Forgiveness of sin and cleansing of sin. They are two similar but slightly different concepts. Forgiveness is like cancellation of debt. It's something that refers to what you've done in the past. I forgive you for what you've done. God's forgiveness absolves us from the punishment that we deserve. But cleansing, on the other hand, is freeing us from the pollution of sin. It is a future-oriented sanctification. It is transformation. When we confess our sins, God not only forgives what we've done, but He cleanses us from the polluting effect of that sin that lingers within us. That is why John can say in 2.1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. There is such a thing as sanctification. Christians continue to be changed and cleansed as we continue our fellowship with Christ, the light. I think it's so important that we grasp both forgiveness and cleansing, justification and sanctification. Sometimes people make the gospel sound like a free ticket to sin, which sounds like an oxymoron. If you pray these words, if you just pray the sinner's prayer, all your sins will be forgiven. That's all you need to do. Just pray this prayer, and that's it. But there is both forgiveness and cleansing of sin. It is true that God loves us the way we are, no matter how sinful. It's true that we don't have to fix ourselves before we become a Christian. But, and that's a big but, because God loves us the way we are, He does not leave us the way we are. A mother's love for a child doesn't change even if he he comes home with his dirty clothes, if if he's with mud all over the place. Her love is still the same, but no parent will leave him like that, saying, it's okay, I love you so much that I don't care if you're dirty. I don't care if your t-shirt is all muddy. It's because God loves us so much, no matter where we are, no matter who we are, no matter how sinful we are, that he doesn't want to leave us there. He wants to cleanse us from our sin. And this forgiveness and cleansing is all possible because of who Jesus is, and what He has accomplished for us. Verses 1 and 2 in chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous, He is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here again, John turns to God. Who God is. He started out by telling us that God is light. Now he's telling us who Christ is. That He is our advocate. He is the righteous. And He is our propitiation. The original word for advocate is a kind of a hard word to translate into English, but it means... A helper, or an advocate, or an intercessor, mediator. Some say that it is a word that had legal connotation. Someone who intercedes on our behalf. Jesus is able to advocate, intercede, because He is the righteous. And He is our propitiation. This is another hard word in this Bible here, but it means an atoning sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. Because Jesus is the righteous, and because He has died as propitiation, as atoning sacrifice on our behalf on the cross, He can advocate. He can intercede on our behalf. Now, a bit of a side note here. This word propitiation and the notion of satisfying God's wrath has become so unpopular these days is one of the probably the most famous obstacles towards Christianity these days. The people find this assertion so absurd that a loving God needs a sacrifice to control his anger. That's one of the questions that I get most with non-Christian students. What kind of God is that who needs to kill his own son to, for his anger to be appeased? They say. Some even call this divine child abuse. The idea of God sacrificing His child to satisfy His wrath. But I think two things we must take note here. the First of all, God's anger is righteous and just. It's not arbitrary or unjust anger like some Greek pantheon or someone who can't control his emotions. It is a righteous and consistent anger towards sin and injustice. And second, most importantly, the atoning work of the atonement, the work of the cross, is the work of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not that God decided to punish someone else and say, I don't want to punish humans, so I'll just bring on someone along and just punish him instead. No. God took on the penalty of sin upon himself because Jesus is fully God the father and son are one and that is the divine mystery but christ's atoning sacrifice was the work initiated by god himself the father son and the holy spirit Who christ is is the foundation of our forgiveness of sins because he is the righteous one he was able to die for our sin because he was sinless Because he was the atoning sacrifice, he can advocate on our behalf. Because we have Christ the righteous, the propitiation, the advocate, we can confess our sins in the full assurance that our sins will be, no doubt, forgiven. If you think about it, this is just crazy, that every single time we sin, every single time we commit sin and confess our sins, Jesus Christ, the King, the Lord of all, He is there with you, advocating for us to the Heavenly Father. Every time I pray, Father, I am so sorry that I have sinned against you. Jesus is there saying, Father, forgive cause for his sin. For I have come to the world and I have died for this. Sin for this sin that I have died. It was for Him, it was for this sin that I have suffered on the cross. Every confession of sin brings freedom and declaration of victory from the Father. Child, your sins are forgiven. Now I want to make sure that we don't misunderstand this passage as some in the past have done. What this verse tells us is that if we confess our sins, God will forgive us, no doubt included. God will forgive us. But it does not say we have to confess every single sin that we have committed. That was the real fear that Martin Luther had. He was constantly afraid. Oh, maybe I forgot to say, I forgot to confess this sin. Oh, maybe I forgot to confess this sin. Maybe God might not forgive us because I forgot to, there might be a sin that I forgot to confess. He was constantly afraid. He was constantly afraid of God because of that. But later Luther comes to realize that that's not the point of the gospel. The gospel is that our sins are forgiven once and for all. Not because of our faith and consciousness. Not because of our faith and continuous confession. But solely because of what Christ has done on the cross. And that was be- the beginning of the Protestant church. All of our sins are forgiven because forgiveness, its original word means for, as in before, and giveness as a gift. It is a gift that is given to us beforehand on the cross of Christ. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, you might be asking, does that mean that we don't have to confess our sins? Because Jesus died for us for every single sin we have committed and we will ever commit. Does that mean that we don't have to confess our sins and live the way we want because Christ will forgive us anyways? Absolutely not. Because that will be exactly the act of walking in darkness. That will mean either that we ignore sin or deny its existence. And that is exactly what John is talking about here. To have fellowship with God, to walk in His light, is to walk in a life of confession. To walk in the light is to be constantly confessing our sins, constantly returning to the Father and confessing, Father, I have sinned against you. Sometimes Christians and especially new believers struggle with this. When I was a staff at a campus ministry, I had a student come up to me one day and tell me, You know, when I became a Christian, I felt like I have become a better person. Because I confessed my sins and I became a believer, I felt like I became a better person. But now, after one year of becoming a Christian, I feel like I'm a worse person than before. Because every day we come to Bible study, every day I hear the Word, I feel like I'm a sinner. And I said, well, that's exactly because you are a Christian that you feel sin that you have not felt before. It is the opposite. It is because we are Christian. And it is because that you are walking in the light that your sin is being exposed. It is because that you are in the light that you are no longer blind, that you start seeing the sin in your lives. You start seeing, that oh, it was not okay. Oh, this was sin. It was not just some finitude, or it was not just something that everybody does. This is sin. Don't let guilt override you and tempt you to run back to the darkness. Don't let guilt override you and let Satan convince you that you're not good enough to be a Christian. Because that conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit. That conviction is the Evidence that you are indeed in the light right now. Rather, take heart because every sin exposed is another opportunity to rejoice. To rejoice in the gospel. That every moment of shame and grief is turned upside down to a moment of grace and victory in the light of the cross. I told you how during college college I was walking in darkness while pretending to be a Christian on Sundays. I was so good at faking it. I knew the right words because I was brought in a Christian family. I knew what to say. I knew all these theological terms that I could throw in to pretend that I was a knowledgeable, good Christian. But during one spring camp, the speakers challenged us. At the end of the sermon, one speaker said, If you're faking it right now, if you're just pretending to be a good Christian, may the Holy Spirit lead you to repentance. And after that message, we all went back to our men's small group. And the small group leader, who I respected so much, he started confessing his sin about how he was addicted to pornography. And that confession brought forth a chain reaction of confessions. And I was able to, for the first time, confess that, friends, I'm just faking it. I'm just faking this whole Christian thing that I live a totally different life from Monday to Saturday. And I'm sorry. And by the time that night was over, we had all tossed out our garbage in our hearts, and we were all crying, not because of sadness or grief, but because of joy, that we were able to come out from the darkness into the light, that it is okay that we have the fellowship of believers, that we can walk in the light together. Brothers and sisters, where are you right now in your journey with the Lord? Are you ignoring sin and walking in darkness while pretending to be a Christian? Are you blind to your own sins while judging others? Or have you become so numb to sin that you deny the existence of sin? I don't know where you are right now, but God does. God knew that way before you were even born. He knew every single sin that you will commit, you have committed and will commit in the future. He knew every single sin, and He's never surprised. And He still, He still chose you. He still chose to love you. He still chose to forgive and have fellowship with you. Jesus is never surprised by our sins because that is precisely why He came and died for us. Would you run back to the dark? Or would you walk into the light of repentance and confession? Let us close with Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Search me, O God. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for your word today. Lord, your word is a light that shines our path. For you, God, is light itself. And you came into this world as light. Lord, so many times we are tempted when we are brought forth into the light of your glory and truth. So many times we are tempted to just run back to the dark or turn off the light switch, pretend that we have not Seen, the darkness within us. So many times we are tempted to deny our sins. But Lord, help us and remind us that it is not because we are perfect. It is not because of our righteousness that you chose to come to forgive us. It is despite of our darkness. It is despite of our sin. Lord, help us so that we will not use the generic sin to cover up our actual sins that must be confronted today. Search within us, Lord, with your light of truth and reveal the sin in our lives. Give us the courage and wisdom so that we can confess those sins and bring those up to you, Lord, so that we can be freed forgiven and cleansed from the pollution of sin. That as believers, we will be able to retain full fellowship with you and with each other. Lord, we come to you in repentance and confession. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your forgiveness in your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.